0: Listening to the ESG and Coffee Podcast on Investing, Strategy, and Sustainability, hosted by Graham Sinclair. All this traditional finance theory, which says that non-financial data doesn't matter, wasn't an issue in, in the methodology that I was trained. They were not using ESG data, right. but they but it was long-term focused, and it really was about consistent long-term sustainable growth whether it's cash flow or revenue or dividend. And so what we realized is that we could bring in non-financial data, specifically workforce and environmental data to, to make the process, both the quant part and the fundamental part, even more robust. But the most important thing is we could bring it in on equal footing. So we could say that um leadership diversity gender and racial year over year is just as important as cash flow growth year over year not have a financial decision making framework over here and a non-financial decision making framework over here which seemed to be the case frankly everywhere we'd fire blackrock like that day but we wouldn't own them so so usually but then amgen Mm -hmm. you know amgen was one we thought that it was the only pharmaceutical company that wasn't gaming prices um, and then they got pulled in front of Congress uh, uh, for gaming prices, so they got they got sold a few weeks later.
1: I'm pleased to invite to the ESG and Coffee podcast my next guest, Liz Simi, co-founder of Honey Tree Investment Management, based in Canada. I first met Liz on Twitter hashtag FinTwit. Please join the conversation. Uh, there's plenty of opinions. And I found Liz to be one of those plain speakers that uh, I appreciate. She was not afraid to speak directly to what investment practitioners do well and how ESG is and is not meeting the moment, who's doing good work and who is screenwashing. One day we will enjoy a coffee together in one place, but for now uh, we get to share digital moments like this. Like all my interviews, but especially this one, uh, it is not boring. Uh, I'm sure you'll learn a lot. You'll come away with a few questions. At the end of the interview, I'll be back uh, to give some highlights and takeaways, as well as something I missed. As always, ESG and coffee is not investment advice, but please do listen to the experience of a human making investment happen using all factors, including environmental, social, and governance factors in the investment process. Here is Liz Simi. So today, in this episode, in season one, I'm very pleased to welcome to the ESG and Coffee podcast, one of the originals making ESG positive investment happen, Liz Simi, co-founder and CIO, Chief Investment Officer at Honey Tree Investment Management. Please check the episode note for more on Liz. She's on Twitter, at Liz Simi, where she describes herself as a co-founder of at Honey Tree Invest, long-only concentrated responsible growth, elder millennial, sub-tweeting and doing real ESG and active management. And if you checked out her tweets today, you'll know exactly what I mean. And LinkedIn, she descri- she's described as advocate for investment industry transparency, strategic leadership, understanding impact, and making decisions based on data. Welcome, Liz Simi.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Great to have you here. Where in the world are you today?
0: I am in Toronto, in the east end of Toronto.
1: Excellent, in the fine country of Canada, yes? Absolutely. (laughs) Nice. And uh, first call here, if we were at your local coffee shop or cafe, what would I be ordering for you to drink?
0: In the summer, it'd be an iced Americano. Um, in the the winter, it might also be an iced Americano, but probably, uh, depending on the quality of the espresso and the place, um, it would probably be an Americano, but it, it could just be a dopio espresso.
1: Very good. Uh, a, a connoisseur. I enjoy that. Well, do you have a, your cup of coffee with you now? I have mine. In I my, do. Nice. And my friendly mug from Asha <laughs> Seppari.
0: Well, I'm drinking iced coffee now because I don't normally drink hot coffee in the afternoon, even when it's not hot outside.
1: Fair enough. We appreciate a disciplined investor. We'll unpack that more in part three. Uh, Right. At the beginning, let's look back. Um, I like to start at the beginning looking back using Sir David Attenborough's superb Netflix documentary, Our Planet. He references two significant data points which illustrate the exponential changes happening on our planet. In his lifetime. So, I've asked you as my guest uh, before the interview to check on three data points. I'm going to ask them and ask you just to reference what yours were. And the question is this In the year you earned your first career paycheck, you don't have to tell us how much or when it was, unless you want to. Roughly, how much was each of these data points? World population.
0: Well, I started working very young, long before it was legal. And so my first paycheck was um, at about age eight or nine. So I chose 1990. um, And uh, the world population was 5.3 billion. The S&P was at 361, which I don't even understand or believe. Um, And (laughs) the, the, the parts per million was 354.
1: Go ahead. and by ref- for reference today, population, 7.9 billion, S&P 500 around 3,890, uh, and CO2 equivalent around 417 parts per million um, at the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory. Liz Simi, how does it feel to hear those data points and to reference back to when you started?
0: Um. I mean, I don't think, sorry, I don't think Sorry, the cat has joined us. I, that's the one thing I've not about before. Um, you know when when the I don't think the emissions numbers surprise us. Uh, I mean, I've always been a big fan of population geography, so I've always been a, a passionate observer and and human growth and 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 economic growth. And you know, it, have we done anything since I was born or got my first paycheck? Not really. Yet we've talked about it a lot. You know, that's that's kind of one of my you know, whether it's emissions or diversity, you know, you saw the Morning Star piece that came out last week that was we have not made a move in women portfolio managers in 20 years, right? right. And so we need to do a lot more, is what this data says to take everybody healthy.
1: Got it. Let's jump in then with some espresso shot questions, short question, short answer, and then we've got our three deep dives coming. Right. So are you ready for your five espresso questions? Question one. What is your earliest memory of investing?
0: Um, losing a bunch of money with my first investment in high school um, in the 2000 crash, which I talked about on the City Wire podcast.
1: Got it. What is your philosophy of investing in one sentence?
0: Responsible growth.
1: Mm, nice, nice. And what switched you on to ESG? I
0: always cared about it conceptually. I just didn't understand how it worked in security selection until I did. And that's kind of where Honeytree came from.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. And how do you choose to define sustainable investment or investing with ESG factors in less than 30 words? I wrote this down.
0: Stakeholder-governed, purpose-driven organizations outperform in the long-term because their impact drives the bottom
1: line. Excellent, so read that for me again. That's That's very, very good.
0: Stakeholder-governed, purpose-driven organizations outperform in the long run because their impact drives their bottom line.
1: Excellent. Right. Question five. What is your biggest investing mistake so far?
0: Same thing. 2000, first Money in the Market, CityWire podcast. um, It taught me lots of stuff, um, like that markets go down a lot in the short term.
1: Was that that a name or or a strategy?
0: It was just, uh, it was just. Uh, I can't even remember if it was a global equity or U.S. equity. I just, I put a thousand dollars, my first thousand dollars, into the market at whatever the top was, and then eight months later, it was down to six hundred bucks. Um, and I, I, that was my first and, and for a while, my own only experience in the market. So my, it, it taught me a
1: lot. Yep, that'll certainly hurt, and that'll be burned into your memory. Fair enough. Let's move then to deep dive part one of three. Uh, where we try and unpack recent topics, uh, strategies, understand more about your approach and the shop. So if we, first of all, situating you, if we simplify the investment value chain into someone owns the money, someone advises on where to invest their money, someone's gathering the assets, someone's managing the assets, someone's analyzing investment options, someone's presenting data on investment securities and influencing the investment decision, which would you say you do, and what does your f- firm do the most? Where, so I'm trying to situate you in this investment value chain.
0: I would say we manage assets. Um, that's that's our goal. We're, we're an asset manager serving mostly institutional and, and advisors. Um, that, that's how we're planning to build our business. Um, as opposed to, you know, advisors, for example, who who also advise on allocation and, and consultants who advise on, you know, investment choices. So that's that's kind of where we sit, and that's that's what I do. That's what our team does: is is manage assets, um, manage strategies, equity strategies uh, for for others.
1: Got it. Okay. And uh, a simple question I realized I wasn't asking before. So you're the first guest to have this question because I, I like to be also practical, frankly. And the question is, how does one buy your investment or finance product or service?
0: We don't have a vehicle yet. Um, so we started our firm purely as separate accounts. So those are currently available in Canada. Um, and they will, at some point, probably around when this podcast is released, be available in the U.S. Um, we may um, have a v- have an ETF available somewhere um, at some point in the next year, but for now, Um, we're really, uh, we're focused on, uh, the RIA, uh, base in Canada and, and eventually in the U S and institutions, um, who are, who are early adopters at new ESG strategies. Um, we're, we're very new. We're sub two year track record, which in the institutional world is, you know, we're not even born yet. Um,
1: so, so you, you,
0: you can, you, we don't have a vehicle that I can send you to, but you can find us, um, by going to our website.
1: I, I, I really have found, and I'm on record on this before, around ETFs. I really, you know, there's different types of ETFs now, the, uh, the various varieties. So it's not just about tracking passive. Uh, um, there's active non-transparency, for example, or there's thematics. I'm a big fan of them just because they make the entry point possible. So right now I'm working with with my uh, young son on getting him into the investment game with an allowance. And so we're looking through ETFs because it's a basket and it's low cost and it's transparent. And um, yeah, I'm a big fan of, of ETFs as, as the technology, as the vehicle. And I know it's difficult with some strategies and it won't suit everything, but I would argue any shop that possibly can absolutely must try and get an ETF up on the shelf. And I know that it's a very crowded space, can be, and you have to kind of fight for your shelf space. But absolutely, it's the right way to make it accessible to more people.
0: Yeah. And interestingly, in Canada, um, the there's a lot of more active ETFs. We have different rules up here. So ETFs, even passive ones, are not required to disclose their daily positions. So we've had a lot more adoption of active ETFs, which drives the management fee down. So there, there will be a strategy available available for 1.1% in a mutual fund but it's 0.7 in a in an ETF up here that's active um, and so that's why we believe you know active ETFs have some issues in, whether active or passive in terms of buying and ordering their bids and spreads and and this kind of versus mutual fund but it, it really um yeah, i think what's what's happened in Canada is going to happen in the US and in folks will not even launch new funds that don't have an ETF vehicle attached or, or sleeve attached. So it'll it'll be very fascinating to mm-hmm. see how that changes the the industry. And that we you know we we're just um, you know we have a strategy that we don't really mind if it's transparent, right? You know we right. you, you yeah. can copy our strategy off of thirteen F's because we don't change positions very often. So um, it, it's a very fascinating product dilemma.
1: Excellent. Good. And then I have to ask, and I know Paula, your colleague has spoken about this before, uh, and I, I'm curious to hear you explain it, the strap line that you have for for honey tree, and it's quote, at honey tree we invest like bees, unquote, which is just fun and great and smart marketing on your part. Liz, could you give us a few sentences on how you guys settled on the name? Were you flipping coins? Were you out in the orchard one day? How, how did you come on the name, and what does it mean to you?
0: We uh, we knew we needed a kind of tech-forward, light, fun, fresh, non-stone gate, black rock type name because, for basic branding principles, we could not be a gray gate like the rest of the investment industry. Um, so in, in my background is actually market research before I came into okay. the investment industry. Okay. So I, I care very deeply um, about this stuff. A lot of very large companies spend a lot of money trying to figure this stuff out. So so that's what we, we needed, a simple word that was memorable, transferable, um, uh, that, that gets caught in people's head, but when they see it, they think ESG. So that that's what we were going for. And we started with Honeycomb but there was a hedge fund in New York um, with the same name. And so we couldn't do that even though we were in Canada. So we actually spent like a whole weekend brainstorming because we wanted to keep the bee analogy somehow. Yeah. We, knew, yeah. we knew it was important because bees are uh, like how our plants grow. They yeah. are, they're woman led. Um, they're very systematic. Um, you know, we're kind of killing them, but yeah, uh, the, we loved that analogy. So really we kind of just, it, we did, we did, four days of ideation um, over a long weekend. And finally we were like, tree, honey, tree. Um, and that's literally where it came from. So we were, oh, we were, that, that, that's, we, we take, we did not spend $40,000 with a consultant to try right. and get, the thing, uh, because we we did not need that, but it, it, it matters a lot. And, you know, when you go to our website, the analogy that we've used, you know, it's purposeful marketing, right? It, it's done for no other reason than to, to appeal to folks who, 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 who are, who are looking for investment management as, right. as done by the bees or, or, or focus. So, so it's uh it's, and it's really, you know, we, we wanted to so many asset management websites have so much information and so much yeah. stuff and really wanted to be a little mysterious and simple. And so the story really worked well and, Took a lot of convincing we, we animated bees like the second iteration of this like when because because i built a, i built our website the second iteration is going to have like flying bees that, that that's my goal oh, like right. even be cuter. so it's okay. uh it, it matters a lot for branding
1: oh uh, well i'm going to push you then and on account of having seen bees as part of a green rooftop i think at harvard business school and definitely at international finance corporation down in dc i'm gonna need you to have a live stream to the official honey tree bee colonies that you and Paula are running at some point? So that's We are very-
0: going to sponsor. Um, there's a way that we can actually sponsor some of the local Toronto colonies. So we went to the yeah. the group that that does that. So we, uh, at, at some point, we will send all our clients a little jar of, of honey from Toronto-based bees that we sponsor.
1: Wonderful. I was just uh, enjoying the Science Friday podcast um, from NPR and they're talking in Detroit where they took a lot of the empty lots and now there's uh, community um, honeybee uh, uh, groups that, that are putting uh, hives wherever they can. Excellent. Good. Um, and there is no there is no tree, which is a honey tree, right? That's a made-up word. Or is there a tree called a honey tree? I could be wrong.
0: There, It's it's a Winnie the, Winnie the Pooh references it, I believe. That's where the reference comes from. We didn't get it from there, but right. that's what husband who was raised on, on okay. Winnie the Pooh, his father's British. Um, was uh, went straight there, so it, it, I think it is the the it's part of that those stories. That's the only place it shows up, and then it's a couple random companies globally, like some daycare and other. But it it's a made enough. up.
1: Fair enough. We thank A.A. Milne for his contribution. Um, right. Moving on then, uh, in terms of the deep dive. Uh, again, I'm I'm just um, s- starting at the high level to understand the shop, and part two we drill down, and, and part three we drill down more. And here I'm quoting off the website, I think. Um, Honeytree Investment Management is a Toronto-based asset management firm focused on responsible growth. We build quantum mental public market portfolios for institutional and select private investors, look for concentrated high-conviction strategies with full ESG integration. We are proud to live and work on the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation and the ancestral lands of the Haudenosaunee and the Huron-Wendat. I apologize for pronunciation, that's on me. First first of all, I greatly respect the referencing to the First Peoples. Uh, That's first impressed me looking back at some um, work coming out of Australia, how they open public events, um, um, thanking uh, the, the First Nations people. I've looked to do that that particularly came up in the Arctic investing work I did at the Kennedy School when we were working on that. So respect to you for, for framing that. But wh- why do you choose to use these three sentences to describe your shop?
0: We, you know, our website doesn't have a lot of information. Um, we did that purposefully. So this is, you know, the first sentence is, is the first two sentences are really our, our brand positioning, why we're here, what we do, the products that we produce in, in as simple terms possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, quantum mental is a little bit of a polarizing term, but they, but it's what well, we So
1: what can I hold you on that? So I heard it the first time when, when you're being interviewed and then I read it again and I heard it, but I've got you live on the podcast. What do you mean by quantum mental and what do people mean by quantum mental?
0: Apparently, it was coined in 2000. And I spoke to the gentleman who coined it um, a couple of weeks ago um, in 2005 or six, okay. um, which is when the strategy that I was trained on was was built. But he, the the team that built it did not know that it was quantum mental. All quantum mental means is that we are neither pure fundamental nor pure quant. We're somewhere in between. We use both types of processes. Um, I think a lot of strategies are in fact quantum mental. Some, some just do happen to be pure quant and some just do have, but everybody else is somewhere on that spectrum. And so, you know, in, in our process, which we'll go into, we use, we use quant methods to get to a small consideration set very quickly as opposed to uh, our team covering, you know, a hundred names and, and, you know, we, we, we use, we use the quant part to systematize our decision-making to get it to a small area. And then we do a deep dive. So we're not a pure quant shop because we're not selling a systematic strategy out of our quant process. And we're not a pure deep dive only fundamental shop because we also use some quant processes. So that's kind of what it means. Um, and I didn't even, I was, I was working on the product for years and, and even selling it at my old firm before an analyst was like, you guys are quantum mental. Um, And so that then we just thought, well, that's a really good way to describe what we do, because we do not fit in the buckets, the traditional consultant or the traditional finance theory buckets of of pure fundamental or pure quant. Um, And I think that's important because it's why we can do what we do so small. Um, It is why it is what leads to outperformance. It is. And it's also what allows the integration of non-financial data, ESG data to work. Um in, 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 in our particular process.
1: Okay. And, and so let's talk a bit more um, on that process and, and then I want to get to how you source your ESG data and then do your own analysis. So on the portfolio construction piece, this is described in the Honey Tree Global Equity Investment Process document. You say our thesis of responsible growth is achieving, is achieved by assessing ESG, non-financial, and financial measures on equal footing throughout our process. And I think that's a fundamental design decision that you've taken on the process when I'm working with clients as ESG architect. That's often the first point where we have like the big blow up slash roadblock because the ESG decision versus the financial decision which goes first, how to sequence them and then to try and fold them in to do them simultaneously is tremendously difficult and takes nuance and experience and so on. So could you unpack a little bit on that, how you, how you operationalize the, doing them uh, at, on equal footing through the process.
0: Um, we lucked out because um, the, the only investment shop that I've ever worked for threw out most of traditional finance theory in how they built their portfolios. Um, and their goal was to find the, the most consistently high dividend growing companies in the US. And, and they would be consistently high dividend growing because the governance and the management was of such high quality that they were able to grow consistently. So it was always about very long term focused, pure fundamentals. So valuation wasn't important, factors didn't matter. All this traditional finance theory, which says that non financial data doesn't matter wasn't an issue in in the methodology that I was trained they were not using ESG data right. but they but it was long-term focused and it really was about consistent long-term sustainable growth whether it's cash flow or revenue or dividend and so what we realized is that we could bring in non-financial data specifically workforce and environmental data to, to make the process, both the quant part and the fundamental part, even more robust. But the most important thing is we could bring it in on equal footing. So we could say that um, leadership diversity, gender and racial, year over year is just as important as cash flow growth year over year. Not have a financial decision making framework over here and a non financial decision making framework over here, which seemed to be the case, frankly, everywhere. Um, and, and because we actually believe that stakeholders, we believe in stakeholder governance. We do not think shareholders are more important. Um, and I'm happy to argue that on a governance framework with anybody. But most of the investment industry, most of the PMs out there don't believe that in in security selection. They might believe it in the community. They might believe it in, in corporations and stuff. But the the traditional investment framework of which many portfolio managers are trained um, causes causes stakeholder needs or stakeholders themselves to be secondary. And so this data, mm-hmm. is, all this non-financial data is considered a secondary input. And that's why you see separate ESG teams um, at almost at, at the world's leading ESG right. firms who are right. not involved in security selection. Mm-hmm. So we really thought it was important to use this data in security selection equally. Because otherwise, what was the point? Um, and, and that's kind of really what you know we believe non-financial data is fundamental company data. Um, right. and simple. We believe a lot of ESG data is stupid, and we throw that all out and we look for the, the useful stuff. You know, we don't care how many awards they've won. We don't care how many things they've signed that says they're not gonna do bad stuff. We, we look for evidence um, of change and innovation in, in the financials and non-financials.
1: Excellent, and um, so, and that reminds me, I wanna, um, in our third segment, I wanna touch on performance attribution. You started a great uh, conversation recently about that. Um, but just to land this deep dive part one, uh, your ESG data and analysis. So are you, are you pulling feeds from vendors? Are you doing it yourself because you've got a concentrated portfolio? So you should have the bandwidth to do that. What is your approach to, to finding the ESG data and then making the analysis?
0: We use some open source data. Um, so Carbon Disclosure Project, uh, Glassdoor. So you can understand those are pretty simple um, pulls. Um, we don't use a lot of the ESG data that is available from vendors for a couple reasons. Um, the we we use different data sets, right? So we don't care just about emissions. I can get an emissions data set from anyone, but I can also just get it from the financials pretty easily. We want water use, we want waste, we want um, waste reuse, we want recycled inputs. None of this stuff is in, is in any of the ESG data sets. It's, it's really very emissions focused or CEO comp, the stuff that's already being reported. And in the workforce side, you know, we started in 2018 only looking at diversity beyond gender, right? So we, we've always looked at racial diversity at board level, exactly below. But none of that data was even available until last year. I think T- Refinitiv published the first manager-level gender and racial diversity, and that data set was out um, of date and, and missing most of our portfolio companies. So we're lucky because, you know, we we in our quant process, a lot of the stuff is, is is financial or publicly available. Like we exclude dictatorships. That's pretty easy. We don't need a data set to exclude dictatorships. You just cut off all those. Um, companies. But when we get to our consideration set, which is only 45, mm. all those companies are the leading reporters of this stuff in the world. So we're able to build semi-systematized data sets, quant ones and qual ones from the company reporting and some some open source data sets. And so until, until the vendors have the, the raw data that we can get from these companies, right. it's hard to find, you know, again, it's gender diversity, especially if you look at any European-based um, data sets or any of this. Um, and we look at all of them, all the new ESG and impact and everything, but mm-hmm. there's a big reporting Leg. Like we have a couple companies who don't look good on a lot of ESG scoring because they say they have no goals on diversity. They say they right. they just haven't reported in the right place. They're, in fact, infinitely better at improving diversity or, or saving water than right. a lot of companies with higher ratings. But they're just not filling out the right forms because they don't have bigger marketing departments. So that's yep. that's the big issue with a lot of the data sets is Canadian banks are really good at filling out forms. And, you know, some retail manufacturers in the U.S. who actually pay more and do better for the world aren't as good as filling that out. So they get much lower scores. So we we really try and, you know, we're really trying to decide are these companies stakeholder governed and purpose driven, which is very hard to do. There are very few companies out there run like that. They're not perfect, but they are trying to make the world better and they make money because they're doing that.
1: Got it. I think that's it's a very really important point, and that speaks to your qualitative advantage. And frankly, that's what I think that's what clients should be paying any investment manager for is, is that that nuanced and, and that deep look, whether they use from a vendor or do it themselves or do a hybrid of the two. Um, let me then pick up uh, one last comment in in the deep dive part one here. Uh, You describe using uh, 25 qualification criteria to create the consideration set, um, and you referenced it earlier. Uh, And then you look at growing financials, stakeholder-focused governance and innovation, you spoke about that uh, a bit earlier, and specific inclusions such as fossil fuels, weapons, and tobacco. Uh, and then you go on in terms of your process. So something that's always stayed with me over the years was work when I was at uh, KLD in Boston, one of the original ESG research and index shops, got hoovered up by risk metrics and then an MSCI. We once had a situation where we are examining tobacco exposure. And w- as soon as it comes to to exclusions, the question is, well, how do you want us to measure it? it was often the challenge we had as the research shop back in the day, client would say, we don't want X, but say, okay, uh, X shows up in all these places, what exactly do you mean? And for example, if you recall the, um, the BlackRock CEO letter around thermal coal, it was exiting you know, above 25% of revenue which still leaves a lot of revenue potentially coming from thermal coal. So when you look at fossil fuels, weapons, and tobacco, just how do you set the threshold?
0: That's a really good question um, that I, I, I think it's going to be really um, uh, get very interesting over the next few years, especially as um, a lot of large endowments are going fossil fuel free. Like what does fossil fuel free mean? Um, It's, it is a, if we're fossil fuel free, by the way, according to the traditional definition, um, which means we don't have fossil fuel extractive companies. Right, right. But all of our companies use a lot of fossil fuel. So that's I'm I love saying that because it's yep. kind of throwing us under the bus. But it is, you know, it it is. So exclusions, um, you know, they're very interesting. Um, so weapons, for example, a lot of traditional Traditional strategies only excluded weapons of mass destruction. Right. So he right. felt it was very important to exclude all weapons. Okay. But, yeah. but, so we exclude all guns and stuff, in yeah. missiles, people who build right. literally things that, but we don't exclude surveillance involvement. Yeah. We don't exclude um, technology, military uh, technology. We, we need military technology to save people who are drowning in the ocean. We need right. sure. peacekeeping missions. So that line gets very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so what we'll tend to do, I mean, it's a little harder with some of the big techs when they're kind of the only option in the world. But, you know, we will look at what supplier number they are. Okay. Um, you know, we, we have Accenture in the portfolio, even though they're a supplier to the border.
1: prisons. Right. But
0: they're supplier number 24. Right. Um, and they're, I mean, they're the only people who do what they do, but they've done a lot more work than a lot of tech companies on hiring black people. Yeah. Uh, and so, how do you balance those two measures?
1: And and this is the reality, right? And I'm I'm gonna tease you. And when when I look at one of your pitch decks soon, I need a slide there that deals with Space Force. Okay. Just because we need, so, we need the Netflix show and something from there. And then, you know, uh, your satellite is watching for people floating in the ocean and or something might happen. So I need to watch place.
0: Space Force. I have not watched Space Force and I know I'll love it. I'm a space junkie. Apollo 13 is like my favorite movie.
1: That's a great of all time. yeah, yeah. Uh, I really uh, enjoyed Michael Collins's autobiography as well as I greatly recommend it to you. Right, so let's uh, wrap uh, part one of the deep dive now uh, with a a classic question I like to ask clarifying things. It's a look at a a detailed um, performance indicator around carbon uh, dioxide equivalents. So the question goes like this. What price for CO2 equivalent per tonne does your firm use internally for your operations And then what price for CO2 equivalent per ton is in your portfolios?
0: Okay, so our weighted average carbon intensity per million dollar sales is 45.9, which is about a quarter of the index. So we reduced about 75% of the emissions relative to the index. I mean, it is only 20 companies. Mm -hmm. Um, We, Had there been no pandemic, um, we would have started tracking our travel emissions. But since neither of us have left our house in the past year, um, you know, and that's something, it's really interesting. The price is all over the place in Canada. I don't know if any, if you've looked at the the carbon Uh pricing, there's, it steps up $10 or $15 a ton every two years or something up here okay. um so we would use whatever the canadian government was using at the time um we have not got there yet so hopefully our integrated annual report um next year will you know we, can, we we're not going to do a diversity report if it's just the two of us um because it's pretty straightforward um but it, it, it that's something you know we have to measure and, and uh, most of our companies are are looking at it and and we think it it's it's everything it's commuting it's the buildings it's the shipping it's the processing yeah. it's so complex and it's not just about you know one of the one of my big problems is our and our industry mm-hmm. seems to be very obsessed with emissions from extractions and automobiles and not from buildings construction commuting
1: yeah.
0: yep. shipping fruit from south america all winter, all this kind of stuff
1: uh, yeah yeah, yeah. So
0: that's that's. So
1: have you have you asked? Have you? I mean, you've got a concentrated portfolio, so it's not unreasonable that you would have a relationship with if you would ask them. So what I'm trying to track down through this question is I'm trying to track down. You know, I, I saw Swiss Re come out and say from 2025 they're going to have a shadow price of $100 a ton equivalent, um, which starts to get meaningful. And there's some other studies that say it should be way more than that, and and. So we all know that whatever is trading now is kind of artificially low price, right? Still effectively CO2 is free pollution. But so I'm curious and my encouragement might be to you is, could you be asking your 45 companies, are you using a shadow price for internal deliberations? And I have heard some companies share this with investors and the numbers range greatly like i've heard numbers around 10 numbers around 25 all the way up to triple digits
0: now just you know we uh, i was trained in a shop that never met with management because it created a human bias right so you spend the whole weekend golfing with the management yeah. team and then they call you when there's a problem and tell you not to sell and we so we we remove that bias so that being said we still do engagement we are not big enough to matter um, very much, but it is, you know, it is that goes in line. It, it's popping up in Canada, okay. Um discussion of, of carbon price in the context of uh, financial reporting. Um, I haven't seen it that much in the U.S. And it's also because we have more sta- it's more standardized up here. Right. I believe there's a lot in the U.S. It's very state dependent. And, yeah. and yeah. Um, so I think it's that's just one of those things that's going to, um, again, just Become part of standardized reporting, yeah. right? As as this data, as this environmental and workforce data gets standardized in the financials by the auditors, um, the you know where where carbon price risk and and other types of environmental risks that are tied directly to financials will get standardized. So it'll be and in, in, in which which price do you use? Which right. jurisdiction? Sure. So it'll be very it'll be very interesting. And it, it's you know I I think it's important to, I mean, nobody in the investment industry thinks it's for the most, the non ESG world thinks it's good yeah. to charge these yeah. companies for CO2. Um, but that's just, what's going to happen. We're going to, yeah. we're going to get charged for plastic. We're going to get plastic banned because it's, it kills people. Right. And, and folks don't understand that the good companies are already thinking about this stuff. The good companies are already realizing, um, that their, that their bills are going up. Right. So let's, let's not just figure out how to pay those bills. Let's just Outright reduce our emissions and our inputs, right? Let's 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 kind of change. Let's start making electric vehicles because then we don't have to keep buying credits. It, it's the it's not, you know, the BlackRock CIO who quit said that it that corporations don't play a role, and I I disagree completely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think governments play a huge role in in regulations and pushing and change, but the the idea that corporations don't play just as big a role in in yeah, our future.
1: Yeah, I think I think that the points of view of that person, um, yeah, it's a much broader topic and there were some misses there.
0: You are
2: listening to the ESG and Coffee podcast on investing strategy and sustainability.
1: All right. Let's, um, let's move on then to round two of your Espresso Shot questions. Are, are you ready, Les? Yeah. There we go. Question one. What app are you most likely to be viewing on your smartphone while waiting in line? That's a pretty silly question. Um, Twitter. Thank you. Thank you. I borrowed it from the Wall Street Journal. And your answer is Instagram. No, Twitter. Oh, very good. What book did you enjoy reading recently?
0: Uh, Seven Fallen Feathers by Tanya Talaga. It's uh, it's about uh, indigenous uh, bias in policing in Thunder Bay and uh, a kind of a good summary of the disaster that what settlers in Canada did to Indigenous people and kept on doing um, until extreme well and still do now. Um, but it's it's a really I mean it's horrible, but it's a great story because it's about kids being murdered. Um, but it's, uh, it's a highly recommended book for anybody interested in, in reconciliation, um, in Canada or the U S or,
1: or globally. Got it. Yeah. We'll include that in the show note. Thank you. Uh, what is the best kind of pie?
0: Pumpkin. Really?
1: Okay. Yeah,
0: it's the only one I'll eat. I don't like cooked fruit.
1: Fair enough. What is your favorite movie or on-screen moment that relates to the world of investing?
0: Definitely Moneyball
1: really uh and what scene Uh, the whole movie or a scene or something the
0: whole entire thing if we all managed portfolios like those teams were picked we'd have a lot more outperformance of active management
1: all right well we'll take that Uh, and as an investment professional what was your most meaningful success so far
0: I mean probably starting honey tree, but I think um, our ability to talk about stakeholder governance in the context uh, kind of getting our, our our story right around that because that was always the original intent, but it you know it takes time to mm-hmm. to figure out what you're really saying and selling. Yeah. And so I'm pretty proud that we've kind of landed on stakeholder governance because it's it's always been one of my favorite topics and we've been able to talk about, Um, security selection and performance in the context of that and why if you don't take a stakeholder governance approach using esg data doesn't doesn't work and that's kind of the big unspoken barrier issue that's happening in esg is all these folks are launching esg products but they don't believe in stakeholders and so the execution misses
1: right good well that that's a great segue then to deep dive part two of three And let me open then with the the classic of the sell discipline. Um, So let me ask you just straight up, first of all, what is the sell discipline at your shop?
0: So um, companies can be sold for any reason, financial, non financial, or combination of both. And it kind of falls out about a third financial only, a third non financial only, and then a third. Do stupid stuff on on both sides. So our our cell discipline backs up entirely to our portfolio construction. So if a company broke one of the qualification requirements, which is very rare, um, but if you know they their board diversity wasn't over thirty percent anymore, or their glassdoor rating was down, or their you know they their dividend was cut, kind of our basic qualification criteria would be sold immediately. Um, uh, and in the same thing happens in our deep dive, although it's a little less kind of hard hard cut because you know there there isn't a fifteen percent woman minimum woman in, in leadership roles, and that data is annual anyways, right? So we have to be very cognizant of of what's what's available on a non annual basis and what or intra annual and what's annual. Um, so really, what we're trying to do in our deep dive is we've got 44, 45 companies depending on the year. And we're trying to pick the best 20. And so we have that 20. We run, we run our consideration set once a year in the fall. So we'll be doing it again, I guess, for the fourth time um, in October. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's our that's where we get our consideration set from for the year. So with very few exceptions, we are only able to pick companies out of that group for the year. So that kind of removes a bunch of decisions and ideas. Yeah. There are circumstances where a company will come in during the year, Taiwan Semiconductors was one of those. After the Taiwanese election, we decided it wasn't a dictatorship. Okay. So it came in, but that's that's kind of the only example um, of something coming in. So once a company's in, um, in the consideration set,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and once it makes it into the portfolio, then it's really up to um, three different things. Quarterly financial performance being an issue, breaking one of the ESG rules, because again, we're not going to see quarterly decline in, in diversity and leadership or quarterly decline in water use we're not we're not at quarterly reporting that right. stuff yet. you know um adidas for example who we sold and i think are yeah. notes later you know they didn't have a, a bad year but they didn't right. have a, a great year compared to some of their competitors financially but they they made a couple mistakes they made one where they they agreed to the government credit um, facility where they would then have to not pay a dividend, and then they were like, "Oh, damn it, we better not do that." And they don't—they don't, they, they didn't need that kind of credit, so they're kind of stupid um, for doing that. But then their head of equity and inclusion um, said a bunch of non-equity and inclusive yeah. stock and quit, and so those—those those are examples of kind of things that add up. To it's not like a, it's not like. Um, like it. Let's say we owned BlackRock, which we would never own, and the CIO left and said ESG was BS. That's we'd fire BlackRock like that day, but we wouldn't own them. So, so usually, but then Amgen, mm-hmm. you know, Amgen was one we thought that it was the only pharmaceutical company that wasn't gaming prices, um, and then they got pulled in front of Congress uh, uh, for gaming prices. So they got they got sold a few weeks later. Um, you know, and that would have been that would have happened even if they were the best performing fundamental company mm-hmm. in our portfolio. So that's kind of how it's really are they are they breaking any of our rules? Um, are they falling down quarterly financially? You know, there was some debt capacity issues last year, given who knew what was going to happen. So right. it really it, we really do we're really I don't want to say we're flexible. we'll fire a company for anything um but it really it we just that we think they're all as important right So there is not some cell discipline based purely on a financial model. it no. is it is based entirely on our portfolio construction model. Um, and that's what we've done. you know we set thresholds in our in our deep dive across all our measures annually. And so we're really we're really kind of watching on on the the, the measures that we can get quarterly data. Um, if there's any negative changes there, and and we have a bench of companies, it's not mm-hmm. the whole twenty five or twenty four other companies, but we have we have a, a short list of companies that can go in if we need to fire somebody. Um, but we really, I don't want to say we don't ever want to sell and buy companies, but it, you know, we we have I think is it twelve of the twenty are original from May sixth, twenty nineteen, and you know, arguably. Uh, some of the other ones were, uh, you know, it, we like to think of this as a, a learning experience. Um, if it wasn't a learning experience, I don't think we would be doing our job. But um, it is, you know, we're very long term at the same time. We have no problem firing companies because we've got some some potential replacements. So that's, we try and keep it very simple. Okay. Um, and, and,
1: and so let me unpack the... It's interesting that you mentioned the learning and you're quite right, you know, active managers, uh, there's a huge, uh, a large fundamental aspect to what you're doing. Um, you don't, you choose not to interact directly with a company to reduce that human bias. You described that earlier. When and how would you have a situation where you should have, well, according to your cell discipline, you were going to fire that company. But then you decide this is a learning moment and they can work through this. So, would there ever be a situation where, for ESG reasons, financial reasons, what have you, you know, Adidas, what what would Adidas have done differently where you would have sat together as the investing committee and said, this is a teachable moment? We will keep walking on with this holding.
0: I mean, all our companies do stupid stuff. Um, and it's really how they respond to it, right? Um, in, in in their disclosure of it, uh, and in their acknowledgement of issues. So I think we weren't we weren't seeing much learning uh, on you know the the bond thing separate. We want you know it, Adidas has a different set of challenges than Nike, right? Um, Adidas is European. Um, racial equity, racial diversity, even though that's um, we'll call it a core aspect of their client base is 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 different. It's not as serious a thing. Um, and what we would have expected from a company like Adidas is for them to 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 do some more stumbling and figuring stuff out instead of kind of just saying, well, oh, it's not that important. Um, we want, we want, you know, and you go back to Nike, you look at <coughs> Nike, Nike's my favorite, we, we have Nike in the portfolio. Um, still they've made so many mistakes across all parts of the business whereas the pregnant athletes losing their contracts the 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 guy doing performance enhancing stuff at the thing but they when it came out they said oh yeah you're right we're bad let's change this stuff right and and so we're really looking for companies cuz cuz again the even the most like impactful wind farms in the world still have negative externalities right, right. So it's what are they doing? Um, what are they doing to address them? Um, and so we really, it's it's really we were happy to sit there and go, are they gonna, you know, did this stuff happened with the DITAs earlier in the year, right? This was May and July. And we didn't sell them to October, but it was clear that there wasn't that there. there's a bit of a governance hole there. And mm-hmm. it's not a risk that we were comfortable taking. And we had um we we had some other options as exactly.
1: we did Yeah. Our, our, yeah. And, and that's uh, obviously when there's you know thinner margins where you do have the you know Plan B, the other the other stock that you could be in. It's always it remains curious to me that Adidas haven't won better at that. I mean, they were the brand of Bob Marley. I don't know if you've seen some of those old nineteen seventies concerts. Uh, I have recently. And um, so the so let me quote then just landing then on not to beat up on Adidas, but it is a worked example. So you said in your annual letter to your investors, uh, companies reacted poorly under stress. This is the case for Adidas, which you sold in the fall, as you just said. Um, they made numerous fumbles, right? Um, so, so when, I mean, when is their redemption? Maybe to quote Bob Marley, you know, when is their redemption song get sung and when would you look at them again?
0: That's a really interesting question. I've been thinking about that lately because we obviously have a we have a group of companies that we've fired from the portfolio, and some have no redemption ever, but others do have some potential of redemption. Now, I would say the the ones who were fired purely for financial mm-hmm. reasons. Mm-hmm. Um uh, you would think that they would have a higher chance of redemption. At the same time, I think we take the stuff just as seriously, whether it's financial or non-financial. So, you know, we're, again, our companies that we keep on holding do stupid stuff. It's just the right. scale of stupidness and the speed of closure that we're looking at. So, you know, and we we also don't take a lot of good companies that are really well-known as high ESG mm. because we don't fully believe that they're truly committed to the long-term. So basically, basically by firing Amgen and Adidas, for those reasons, we're saying in the, the the near and middle term, we're not super confident about their no. stakeholder governance, the quality of our stakeholder governance. So it'd be hard for them specifically to get back in. Um, kind of like like we can't consider somebody who's cut their dividend, like they're off for five years. Right.
1: Um, and, so- and so, what about a situation VW, Volkswagen, where Boeing, where they cut the CEO or they cut some board members. And in my view, when I'm working with clients, figuring out the ESG architecture, we're developing portfolio strategies, I'm always strong on culture. Explain to me where does culture show up in your investment process? How can we build it for you? And according to your investment philosophy as a shop. So would, would that be a strong signal for you to have a good hard look at it? Or even then you say, no, this is years away.
0: I love CEOs being fired because it shows that the board is functional um i'm i'm not sure everybody agrees with me on that but the board's role is to fire CEOs and hire CEOs and I, they don't have that much of a job beyond that and they don't do a very good job of it very often so in our first in our first in 2018 when we ran our consideration set three of the 40 i can't remember if it was 43 or 44 companies three of them had fired their CEO in the past 6 months so we are we're we're actually happier with CEO firing than we are with CEO retiring. Right. And, and it, 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 so it's not, so culture is everything. Culture is stakeholder governance. Culture is stakeholder engagement. Culture is retention. Culture is how people drive the bottom line who are employees or customers or you name it. So it's, it's, you know, when I say stakeholder governance, a big part of that is culture because you, you, you can have a, a big company that makes a lot of money and has a whole bunch of employees, but they have no engaged stakeholders. They have high turnover. Um, they have to pay more. They, they, they don't keep associates. They can't keep any woman or racially diverse folks in any roles because the environments are so toxic. Um, and so they struggle with this stuff. And the companies that we own don't because they think They they understand how their work on this drives the bottom line. They're not doing it for token to look good, like BlackRock's bond announcement today, or their lending facility where they've tied it to their their they're gonna not they're they're totally screwed on that. By the way, Um, but it's really, you know, you just you just look at all the companies who wouldn't release their diversity data and had to have BlackRock or whoever. Be like, or not BlackRock, but, you know the activist shareholders and, and the big teams. Be like, no, you have to release this. Um, You know those those companies don't have good culture. This right. stuff's being standardized for three or four years now. You have the data. Right. People people don't. So it it it, it and culture like it, it culture matters to the bottom line. It's not like right. this little thing. It, it's 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 what drives purpose it's what drives engagement um, at good companies that that are sustainably growing for the long term
1: got it so let's land uh, deep dive two and, and uh, we're running a bit long here but uh, we'll make that time up in our last section but let's land deep dive two here with the green greenwashing question so do you agree that greenwashing is real and how does it hurt the work that you do
0: I think greenwashing and pinkwashing, which I use to generalize on the the diversity side of things, um, I think they'll help us because I think everybody's going to realize pretty soon that a lot of the products out there are what they consider greenwashed. Mm
1: -hmm. Um,
0: And I don't think it actually has to do with any particular type of company in any sector um, on the greenwashing or the pinkwashing. I think what's happened is most folks, whether they're in investing or not, can look at an ESG strategy or an ETF or an impact fund or whatever, and they go, "Well, why is Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, J and J, Nestle, and 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 why are they all there? How are they all good? How are they all making the world better?" And so it's not, it's not, it's not a particular. Uh, banks are bad or tech is bad or, or consumer packaged goods is bad or, or whatever. It's I, if these guys are trying to sell companies impacting the world or doing sustainable stuff, I'm pretty sure these are not the 10 most <laughs> responsible. So that, so, so it's really, it's really, you know, my understanding of, of greenwashing and, and uh, the disconnect comes from everybody whether they don't believe in ESG or they do believe in ESG, seeing this disconnect in the, in the products. So it's, and and you just, again, the, the, all the BlackRock products, I'm sorry to pick on them, but this is, I, they're just the easiest because of all the media that they've got the the people buying ESG products at BlackRock want to believe that the investment team thinks this stuff is tied to the bottom line. So when they hear that it's that, that no, it's, this is all BS, that they're, they're just, it's it's like, of course, this is greenwashing. This is what everybody's been saying, but we thought these guys were doing better. So it it's it's I mean, I think the investment industry does lots of stuff like this, not related to ESG, right? Whether it's mm. fees or right. different types yeah. and so much conflict of interest, and we're not very good at looking good as an industry. Right. And so this is just this is just opportunism and marketing and folks not really knowing what to do turned into like uh, a really hilarious marketing opportunity for us. Um, and so that's...
1: I like I like the uh, competitive advantage you, you see uh, coming.
2: You're listening to the ESG & Coffee podcast, hosted by Graham Sinclair. Sie hören den ESG & Coffee podcast. Ihr Gastgeber ist Graham Sinclair.
1: Right, so let's uh, um, go to... Fast Espresso Shot Questions, group three. You ready? Yep. Here we go. Do you have a favorite type of tree and what is it? And you cannot say honey tree.
0: Um, I like
1: birch trees. Um, what one book on investing would you recommend?
0: Um, Dark Age Ahead. By Jane Jacobs. Oh, sorry, no, the Death and Life of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs, which is not an investing book. I I've not. I don't really believe much in reading investment books. I like reading history and data books. And and if you have not read the Death and Life of the Great American City, um, in and you're in an investing uh, or especially ESG, um, it's probably I. It's it's hmm. probably more important than any course I took in college.
1: Wow. And that reminds me, Julie Hudson was one of the originals at UBS framing their uh, ESG work in, in the orts. She had done some early important work around uh, spatial development. Um, right. How is your own retirement fund invested?
0: 100% in honey tree
1: stuff. There we go. That's called alignment. Um, what would your advice to your 17-year-old self be today?
0: I mean, I wouldn't have been able to start honey Tree if I didn't make all the career mistakes that I did. So it wouldn't be career, it would be um, drink more water and eat more vegetables. I think um, most of us could use that advice as we get um, older and our bodies don't work as well as they used
1: to. I, I see you saying that at a commencement speech one day. Um, what is your advice to people seeking to enter the field of ESG investment and finance tomorrow?
0: I tell this to every young or not so young person who asked me this. I, I love meeting people and, and kind of talking about the, the careers in this industry because it's all about networking. Um, half the jobs aren't posted. You need to go find people. You need to go meet people. You need to get on radars because we and we need to change our hiring. But while it's not changing anytime soon, um, you know just like in in the big 4 and and, and asset management and esg you you're not going to get a job on a list of 500 applicants because the 20 of those folks are already known to the associates or the senior right. folks it doesn't right. you don't need to you know they, you do not need to be a member of the golf club with them that that mm-hmm. it, that's not what it is it, that but the the you need to be conscious of how decisions get made, which is, Hey, we need this person. We could post a job and do all this stuff, but Hey, we know this other person. Why don't we have them in and see. So it, it's, it, you really need to think differently mm-hmm. um, and, and way beyond um, you know, and, and Honeystreet not hiring yet. I get requests like right. many times a week, um, but I like find firms that you want to work for and, yeah. you know, connect with them. And eventually you know, you'll at least know when they post a job. That's the other thing, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, the, sure. That's that's good advice. Right, for deep dive part three, just mindful of we tied on time. We're just going to focus on the engagement piece. You, you've spoken about it in different ways already, but let's un, unpack... Um, uh, more from your letter, the, the year stakeholder governance mattered. You, uh, you published that on the 20th of January 2021 to your investors. And there are two parts here one you dealt with Illinois Tool Toolworks, ITW, and the other one was Edwards Life Sciences. And could you uh, just unpack a bit on, on the engagement that you took? So who did the engagement? Was it you and Paula, your your colleague? or uh, how did those conversations go? These are names in your portfolio, so you chose to engage with them. Um, So could you talk a bit about Illinois Toolworks and Edwards Life Sciences?
0: Yeah, I mean, our our engagement philosophy is we don't want to hold companies, we need to micromanage. That being said, they can all improve in various aspects. Uh, So our engagement is focused mostly around Um, reporting, and then the big gaping kind of areas, depending on which company it is. Um, You know, in Illinois Toolworks, I use them all of the time. They, if you look at any ESG data set, they get really low scores on diversity because they don't report it anywhere. Yet there are year over year women in leadership and racial diversity and leadership is like off the charts. I think I just saw their new report. Yesterday, and they're past 25% women in leadership, up from 12% four years ago. And I think they're getting close to 20% racial diversity in leadership. They are an industrial company north of Chicago. They're not some fancy equity and inclusion, right. you know, San Francisco or New York or, or, or you know, right. company. They have no reason to do it. And so, you know, when we're, you know, we're, these guys are leaders, so we're not engaging with them on on, on improving diversity. Um, and they, you know, they each company has, you know, there's a, there, there's certain themes too, that will focus on an engagement, um, but it really depends on the company. And, you know, if there's, if they're doing something that is really bad, we're more likely to sell them um, than engage okay. with them. Okay. Um, that's kind of that And Edwards life sciences is is a, is a pretty new addition to um, but it, it's, uh, you know, they didn't need engagement to to figure out this parental leave issue. And they're the first one we've seen. Okay. And I think it's important to mention because it, lack of equity in parental leaves, especially when they're offered equally to men right. and women, is a big problem um, for diversity, especially at senior levels. And you yeah. see that in the banks, in Canada, and the U.S., all the guys have three, four months or more paid. Parentally, but they won't take it, hmm. and unless the company changes their culture to make it okay,
1: right. it'll
0: always be seen as if so, kids my yeah. problem yeah. and not right. So we could engage on that. At the same time, we want to hold the companies that are doing it on their own. Nice. It out.
1: Nice. It. And I can't ask uh, a Canadian investment questions without asking, in what way does ice hockey show up in your portfolio, ma'am? I don't know. Pick that up in, in our second interview a year from now, but um, I, I need to hear ice hockey come through in some. I guess life sciences could be like some first aid, healthcare, treatment option for the players.
0: Heart parts. They do heart valves. Um, um, yeah, I can't think. I'm not a big hockey fan. I'm a, I'm a baseball. Okay, we, we
1: can edit that out. Don't, don't worry. Um, <clears throat> so let, let's wrap Deep Dive Part 3 um, on ESG in 100 Moments. So I'm writing this book. I've been uh, in, encouraged to write this book on the history of ESG in 100 Moments. Uh, that's accessible, kind of co- not quite a coffee table book, but you know, not a thick academic piece. In your experience, if you were to pick up this book and you were to page through it, and then you would suddenly go, wait, hang on, Graham. You do not have my favorite moment or my most significant moment in ESG in your 100. What would that 100, uh, that one moment be that should absolutely be in the top 100 moments?
0: I mean, the easiest answer for me, because I've kind of spent the last year or so saying that this was a problem, was... When the CIO of the largest ESG provider left and said ESG was BS, um, because it really, it I think it 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 blew off this this kind of perceived, uh, uh, you know I th- I thought they were trying sort of I mean I I knew that they weren't because no asset managers really care about this stuff but. I thought they were trying harder than some of the other ones. And, and I think a lot of other folks, whether they're retailing clients or institutional did too because of Larry's leadership on this. Um, but I think it really just exposed like very clearly the the separation between financials and non-financials. And, and the problem is the end client doesn't believe they should be separated, right? And, and the end client is slowly kind of trying to piece together what is really SG and, and the good news is, um, you know, just signing a bunch of policies and pretending you care and, and it, it isn't gonna cut it, right? And folks who want to invest in this stuff want to see who believes in it. Um, and so that I think is gonna, it, that it is going to change how the end client sees, sees the industry. Cause I think that the doubt was there, but now the evidence is, you know, and this is, it, it's not, I, I pick on BlackRock, but this is all the, a lot of the Canadian ESG firms yeah. have the same issue, right? So.
1: I think I understand your point. Yeah, thank you.
0: You're listening to the ESG and Coffee podcast hosted by Graham Sinclair. The слушаете ESG and Coffee podcast. Swami Graham
1: Sinclair. All right, let's come into land then with the fastest special shot questions for our last chance. These are a mix up of the Proust questionnaire and the Bernard Pivot version from inside the actor's studio. Uh, nine questions, you ready? Here we go. What is your favorite word?
0: That is a tough one. Um, I would say, uh, canoe. Oh.
1: Nice. What is your least favorite word?
0: Probably anything angry, anything negative. I don't I, I really only like positive stuff.
1: Got it. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt?
0: Um definitely chef.
1: What profession other than your own would you not like to attempt?
0: Anything um, related to a bureaucracy or a large corporation.
1: What attribute does an excellent investor have?
0: The ability to manage emotions.
1: Which living person do you most admire?
0: This is a cop out, but Tony Bourdais, because he's dead. But he's my favorite human of all time.
1: Okay. Um, We'll include a link to his uh, bio in the show notes. Which talent would you most like to have?
0: Uh, Remembering people's names.
1: Oh yeah. That's a good one. What do you consider your greatest achievement?
0: Probably having kids. It was a lot of work.
1: (laughs) What is your idea of perfect happiness?
0: Um, I'm a big Hemingway fan um, for, for, not but specifically for sitting on a patio drinking uh, uh, something strong and kind of looking in a, in a town and, and just that pace. So, yeah, I that's kind of my happy place is sitting with my husband on a patio somewhere in the world where our kids are not, um, and pretending we're, we're voyeurs and 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 just relaxing.
1: There you go. I have a, a an idea that you should come with me next time I'm back in South Africa, and we enjoy a, a sunset looking at some animals just in that situation. Right. Uh, before we end with the Goldilocks question, an opportunity to talk about an action question and, and then to check with you. So action question, what action do you want our audience to take tomorrow, wherever they are along the investment chain, whether they're big or small? What What action would you like them to take?
0: I'd like you to question everything that anybody says about ESG or impact um, and 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 don't take especially if it's an investment firm like mine trying to sell to you. don't take um, a bunch of slides um, and and a, and a couple you know signing some things saying that they actually believe them. get them to explain it. Um, dig into their their research, dig into how their teams are structured. dig into their decision making. Um, it's possible. Um, the, the manager research folks are doing it. Um, some of the institutions and allocators are getting smarter about it, but it's easy. Ask them how they use gender equity or racial equity data in security selection.
1: That sounds like an action. So good recommendation, thank you. So into the Goldilocks question then. My final question. One share of Tesla TSLA was trading at yesterday's close on NASDAQ at 691 US dollars and had a good day. Is that too high, too low, or just right, and why?
0: We don't believe in price targets and we exclude companies who settle with the SEC on charges. So I actually have no opinion.
1: Wow, controversial answer, thank you. Um, So you've been a fine guest, Liz Simi, co-founder and CIO of Honeytree Investor Management. You're one of the originals. Thank you for the work that you do every day uh, to make investment happen in a new direction. I like to say the investments you make become the world that we all live in. So thank you so much for trying to make it better. And thank you so much for joining me on the ESG and Coffee podcast.
2: Thank you for having me. And now we keep the tape rolling to hear from Graham and his guest as they reflect on their discussion and anything they wanted to add.
1: Is there anything that you feel we should have covered or should have covered differently? Anything you'd like to add?
0: We didn't talk about impact in ESG.
1: Okay, go ahead.
0: Um, you know, for folks who, who, uh Uh, Traditionally, public markets, ESG strategies, um, according to some groups, sit outside of the sphere of impact. Impact investing is done with intention um, and is easier to, let's say, measure and see in private market investments like a a windmill farm. A windmill farm is creating all renewable energy, even though it takes like metal and emissions to build it. Um, you know, it's really easy to see why investing directly in, uh, you know, r- renewable energy or uh, in a fund that's purely renewable energy is impact. It's and it's not. It's it's not that it's more impactful than something else. It's just clear. It's clear mm-hmm. to the end investor. It's clear to the manager. It's clear to everybody involved. What um, what we're trying to make the argument for is large companies play a huge impact. In, in pay equity in in minimum wage in tax in um, a whole bunch of stuff in water use and in, in plastic and all these things that that they on a much larger scale than smaller private investments and so to say that they're not making that that they don't have a giant negative impact to be remediated or are not making a giant impact positively on all their stakeholders we think is flawed right? Is it different than a private direct investment in something that is totally green? Sure. But, you know, as these companies shift to renewables, as these companies shift to, you know, recycled plastic or, or seaweed for materials, they are going to make a huge impact. As they pay more women in leadership roles, as they hire more Black folks in leadership roles, they will make a bigger impact on the local communities and the stakeholders um, than just you know what is considered pure pure impact right now, and um, it, it, it is different. At the same time, you know we we look at it as negative externalities. Everybody has negative externalities, no matter how impactful and how how are all the companies and governments in the world reducing those negative externalities. And so that's that's how we think of impact, which then allows us to make the argument that you know the these companies, even though they're large cap public markets companies, are driving impact. This is an impact investment, even though it's not traditional impact.
1: I see. And and exploring that a little bit further, one thing that, that's come up more recently is this question of, and Paul Pullman himself has said it, he was at the Kennedy School in 2019. I had a conversation with him. This is after he exited as CIO, a CEO of Unilever. Uh, he was making the case for companies need to pay their fair share of taxes if you want cities that work and schools that work and people to you know build a useful society. And now there's a conversation that's happening, well, you know how can there be so many companies that aren't paying federal taxes? Um, and you know maybe there needs to be a minimum threshold uh, that that companies are all chipping in in certain ways. Do you have any view on, companies need to be paying a fair share of tax and and the system of how they're able to shield from taxes needs to be looked at differently?
0: Yeah, I think um, my biggest problem in taxes is companies actively lobbying on taxes. So when you look at the big tech, the big West Coast tech, Mm -hmm. they spend half of their lobbying dollars. So five to 10 to 20 million dollars a year on specifically taxes. So they're not even lobbying about privacy or technology or anything, they're lobbying about taxes. Now, I believe that there are lots of reasonable accounting reasons why one would have a lower tax rate um, for a US-based company. And there's a couple of international reasons. They also like, I don't know, got super reduced Two years ago because yeah. of who was in power in the government, what are you going to do? Say, no, no, let's, I, we want to pay 20% extra tax this year. It doesn't work that way. But so I am a big, I, uh, Paul Pullman, I would agree with completely. Um, and this is what we're looking for. We're looking for companies that will stand up when there's election, um, when there when there's an a issue with democracy, who will stand up and not, you know, who are not fighting minimum wage laws. Mm. There's a lot of highly rated ESG companies, especially in Canada, who fight raises of minimum wage, okay? There's nothing, I'd rather somebody get tax reductions than being actively <coughs> lobbying the government to stop an increase from 13 to $14 an hour of minimum wage, right? And so it's it, it's so complicated. Um, at the same time, it, it's really the, the minimums and the requirements for the, you know, other than like the wire cards of the world, most of these companies, even if they have low taxes are following rules how stupid the rules are is a different story depending on which jurisdiction you're in and there's issues too with the U.S. repatriation like I think Biden's going to up the corporate tax and then they're going to try and, and smooth it um, as long as there's jurisdictions to stuff money somewhere somebody's going to figure it out um, but it, it really it does come down to <clears throat> public stance on this even if it's a changed public stance right like people can, can grow and learn and it really is um, the, the, it's it, But you can see it, it's government and corporate, right? We can't just pretend that it's all government if all these yeah. corporations are spending all this money trying to fight changes. Right.
1: In regular- I hope you agree with me that there was a fine interview with Liz me of Honeytree Investment Management. Here's four high points that I took away. Maybe you did too. Firstly, context is everything in life and in investment. I respect the way honey tree investment is clear on the historical context of where they base their operations. The website stating plainly, quote, We are proud to live, work, and play on the traditional territory of the Missagogas of the Credit First Nation and the ancestral lands of the Hordon Sawney and the Huron Wendat, unquote. In many ways, the Canadian investment industry is doing a better job than most jurisdictions in recognizing the history of how the economy was built and at what price to whom, and looking for routes to include those historically excluded. See in Canada the Reconciliation and Responsible Investment Initiative, which is a partnership between NATOA, N-A-T-O-A, which is a charity uh, supporting Indigenous peoples of Canada, and SHARE, which is the leading not-for-profit organisation on responsible investment services research and education based in Vancouver. When you are a new investment firm in the 21st century, you too may have the opportunity to write a new story, facing all the facts of history. Honeytree Investment Management has taken up that opportunity. Secondly, let's talk about diversity. You can feel most shrink when Liz talks candidly about the poor state of diversity in the investment profession. Her 2020 article, quote, how bad is diversity in the investment management industry, unquote, for benefits and pensions monitor, will make most financial firms pause and many feel uncomfortable. The quarterly report has a story unusual for a firm which is uh, one portfolio of 45 names. I quote, measurable impact from companies in our global equity strategy. Note that they all impact both stakeholders and the bottom line. Illinois Toolworks, ITW, has made diversity an organizational priority and they have been able to execute on it. In the two charts on the right, we can see their year-over-year change in ethnic and gender diversity and leadership roles. This level of organizational change creates real impact on the firm, employees, and communities, unquote. I didn't expect it, but... Somewhere, I found myself quoting Bob Marley's Redemption Song when we were talking about Adidas, which had joined the hairdryer treatment in the Honey Tree Annual Letter to Investors 2020. Quote, Companies reacted poorly under stress. This was the case for Adidas, which was sold in the fall. Adidas made numerous fumbles in 2020, not limited to having to step back from a government debt offering because it would limit their dividend, and having their head of diversity resign for a lack of understanding of inclusion, unquote. Thirdly, Twitter is where the conversation is at. Liz laughed when I asked her, what app are you most likely to be on? Because we both know her voice is clear, loud and present on that free website. See, for example, her calling on colleagues in the investment profession to see the discrimination some months after our interview in September 2021. Quote, so while tons of folks can even know how to change the industry, they are not on positions of power. And the folks that are, one, don't fully recognize the issues, and two, don't know what to do about them, unquote. Twitter remains a forum where one may engage across distance with experts if one is able to and remembers to dodge the trolls, the bots, and the imposters. Personally, I need Liz to question her ranking pumpkin pie as the best kind of pie but her idea of perfect happiness seems good around about now as i stare out at the snow falling here and fourthly question everything liz's encouragement is not to believe whatever promises are made or count whatever initiatives investment firms are signed up to she clearly has experienced that asset gathering by investment firms is marketing and where there's marketing there may be bs Unless the firm can show you what to do, or what they do, and how. This explains how, quote, stakeholder governance, unquote, is a business approach that underpins the honey tree investment management, investment philosophy, which happens before the security selection deep dive work begins. Ask the investment firms how they use gender diversity in security selection process was a pointed question. Liz's answer to the Goldilocks question on that day's price of Tesla, that Honeytree Investment does not invest in firms that settle with the SEC, is direct and controversial. Elon Musk settled SEC fraud charges in 2018. This is the first episode where guest talks jargon, and I try to have Liz explain what quantum mental means, as in the Honeytree Global Equity Investment Process 2021. Quote, mental approach uses quantitative tools alongside a fundamental deep dive to find companies who are stakeholder-governed, long-term-focused, and growing consistently. The companies we hold make a net positive impact on the world and outperform as a result of their purpose-driven, stakeholder-focused growth. Well, those are my four high points. I hope you, like me, really enjoyed that episode and think it stacks up really neatly next to the previous seven and i look forward to being back with episode nine as always please follow us at esg and coffee on twitter and uh, send your feedback to me graham sinclair at esg architect and don't be afraid to give us a five-star review and share it with your friends thank you
2: we hope you enjoyed the interview with one of the originals in investing strategy and sustainability Please subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform or on YouTube and leave a five-star review. Bad reviews you can send to Graham Sinclair at ESG Architect. All the details are in the show notes. And for news of our next guests, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at ESG and Coffee. Do you know an impressive human we should absolutely interview on investment strategy and sustainability? Please let us know on Twitter at ESG and Coffee. Our producer is Kat Farquharson on Twitter at Kat Farquharson and original music by Erin Bonney on Twitter at Erin Bonney Music. And of course, this podcast is for your enlightenment, not investment advice. Do your own research.
1: You have been listening to the ESG and Coffee podcast on investing, strategy and sustainability Hosted by Graham Sinclair.